So if you haven't turned in your Bibles yet, turn to John 13. We're going to be in that text for today. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. How many of you, just show of hands, are familiar with the name Dwight L. Moody? Now, if you thought of the guy from the office, that's not the right Dwight. (laughs) Dwight L. Moody was an evangelist, a pastor, an incredible theologian, uh, just a really, uh, a man of God who really was a very popular celebrity, uh, even like in the late 1800s, like he was very well known uh, across uh, the world on both sides of the pond, both here and in, the, in, the, in, the Euro- in Europe and UK. And there's this story that Gary Enrig reports about how Moody was hosting a pastor's conference here in Massachusetts, of a bunch of pastors from the UK, from over across the pond. Uh, the European pastors, and, and they were all at this conference, and they were attending it, and they stayed in a shared dormitory together uh, while they were attending the conference, and at night, uh, the first night they were there, all of these pastors from Europe took their shoes off, put them outside the, the, their door in the expectation that a servant boy was going to come through, collect all of the shoes, take them away, shine them, bring them back, and have them ready for their uh, wearing the next day. Problem was, this was not England, this was Massachusetts. There was no servant boy coming to wash there and wipe there and clean there and shine their shoes for them over the night. Well, Moody, Dwight Moody, apparently knew of this trend, saw the shoes out in the hallway. He had kind of a few options. One, the next day he could have showed up and been like, what are y'all doing? This is, um, oh, we're America. You shine your own shoes, right? Like he could have done that. He could have tried to just shame them and let them wallow in it. Could have rebuked them for their presumption of a servant boy. Instead, that night when they were all in bed, he gathered all of their shoes. He took them back to his own room and he shined every single one of them, put them back out and they were ready for the wearing of all of those European pastors the very next day. And none of them were the wiser that he had done it. Now, there's some very interesting similarities to that story, to the heart of our text today, to the story that we find in our text today about Jesus, about him washing the disciples' feet, about the host of a conference humbling himself, so to speak, to shine the shoes. Now, you can notice that things are a bit different up here. Uh, Typically, we have a pulpit, and the pulpit is designed in a way to communicate the, the standing authority of God's Word. We're not forsaking that today. We still hold to the standing authority of God's Word, but I'm going to tell you that the pulpit today is actually a basin and some water, and that's the the foundation or from which we're preaching this message that we're finding out today about our God who kneels, about a God who kneels. Now, we're going to explore this text in kind of three main parts. So if you'd like to outline your notes, feel free to do that. The first part is going to be called the visible gospel. Can you say visible gospel? Second part of our text is going to be our continued cleansing. Can you say that? Our continued cleansing. And then the third part that we'll explore today is the example commanded. Can you say that? The example commanded. So three parts, the visible gospel, our continued cleansing, 
and the example commanded. As I showed you this last week. It's key that we're looking at it again because this week we're starting the third section of the Gospel of John. We're 47 weeks into this series in the Gospel of John and we're, we're getting to chapter 13, which starts Jesus' private ministry. It's his ministry to his disciples in particular up in the upper room. We see the synoptic Gospels write about it, but John writes a lot more about the conversation that was had there in chapters 13 through 17. Some of that we find the high priestly prayer. It's an incredible thing uh, to read through and I'm, I'm excited to get to this passage or this section with you together. But the, the dinner, it's, it's the, the scene here is it starts off with this idea of supper time. It's dinner time. Uh, and the Passover, like this is seen as the last supper with his disciples. This is kind of commonly understood that way. So all of him, he and his disciples are in the upper room and they're together and they're, they're, they're reclining at a table. Now, let me explain real quick and set some more context in order to make sense of what's happening. The relationship of Jesus with these 12 men was of a teacher with his disciples, right? Disciples and a rabbi. It's a very common understanding, a very popular thing in the day where religious, uh, renowned religious leaders would take on disciples and and they would have this ongoing relationship with them. And in and, 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 and part of that relationship, these, serv- or these disciples uh, of these masters or teachers, they would serve the rabbi. They were there to tend to the needs of the rabbi and learn what service is really about. So they would do all sorts of things. They'd, they'd make late night runs to the grocery store for whatever they needed. They'd do all sorts of stuff. Whatever was on the docket that the master needed, these disciples would do everything except for one thing. There's typically only one thing that these disciples, uh, culturally, just they would not do for their master, for their rabbi. And that was simply that they would never wash their rabbi's feet. That was a no-no. Culturally, that was an unspoken thing. You just don't do that. That job was reserved for usually Gentile slaves or, or children's servants, the, the lowest-ranked servant in the home. Now, let me kind of explain why. Uh, back then, most of, uh, almost all of Israel, I mean, every part of Israel was held captive to the Roman Empire. Roman Empire brings in the Pax Romana. Who knows what that means? The Roman peace understood part of the Roman peace was this idea of a really quality road system, one that, it, I mean, just went, spread throughout all of their reach and established an easy way of travel for everyone to get from one place to another. It's what helped preserve and protect peace in all of the Roman Empire across its vast reach. Now, this road system, keep in mind, uh, air conditioning wasn't invented yet, neither were cars. Uh, those weren't a thing yet. You know what else wasn't invented yet? Closed toe shoes. Those weren't invented yet. Those weren't a thing. I don't know when Prada came out with those, but I don't even know if Prada was the first one to make them. I'm just making it up. But think about it. These road systems were often traveled by mostly just people walking. But if you could afford a donkey, you'd ride your donkey. If you had a horse, you'd ride the horse. If you had a chariot system, man, you were... You were riding in the bins back then. You'd go down these streets, and, 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 and anybody who had a donkey or a horse or a chariot kind of made, made it through fine. But if you were just walking, 
I mean, I'm just, I'm just going to say it like it is. Uh, watch out for that pile of poop. Watch out for that dung. There's some, uh, and everywhere you went, you would just accumulate tons of dust. And if, if the roads were crowded, you couldn't help but just step in it. Anywhere you went. And so it was really well known that anytime you entered into a home, it was customary to just go ahead and clean off your feet so that you don't bring all of that mm into the house, all of that excrement, all of that dung and, and dirt and dust. You just don't bring it in. And so you get to the house and there would be a slave or a servant. As you came in, they would typically wash your feet. And then they would dry it. It was just custom. The lowest servant in the home of the host, it was their job to scrape the dung and the dust off of everyone's feet who came in that home. Well, we get to our text. Keep in mind everything that Jesus has just said about, sorry, keep in mind everything that John has already said about who Jesus is. Remember all of that, everything that we saw in his public ministry, who you and I know he is, this is what happens. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given everything to his, into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Are, are y'all like as shocked as I am? Are, are y'all as like utterly astounded by this idea? This is insane. I don't, I don't, I don't think we're, I don't think culturally we're tracking with it. I mean, some of us kind of have an aversion to feet. You got to remember who this is. This is this is the bread of life. This is the good shepherd. This is he who is the resurrection and the life. This is in Romans 8 he calls himself before Abraham was I am. This is the great I am. He is the king of kings who who is able to offer living water to give life eternal life to anyone who would drink it. This is him using water to scrape the dust and dung off of human feet. Doing the lowest work of a servant. Guys, keep in mind, the people whose feet Jesus is washing, he created to worship him. And here he is washing their nasty feet. Guys, this act of humility is as, in, in, I guess in my purview, as unnecessary as it is stunning. Like, we gotta ask ourselves, why on earth, why on earth would Jesus do anything like this? He didn't really have to. He could have just gone to the cross, skipped this part. Why would he do this? Such a lowly act of service, one that's grimy and messy. Well, I, I think there's a few reasons, and, and one of them 
is because he's trying to show them why he came. He's trying to show them in visible display the heart of the gospel. Like, how many of you have ever played the game charades? You like it? Yeah, it's a fun game. Play with my wife. She'll win every time. It's ridiculous. Let's say Jesus were to pick the card for charades and he'd pull it up and the, the card says, the gospel. How would he act out the gospel? With a water basin and a towel. Here's why. And guys, I'm about to tell you, like this, this whole thing is just so gospelicious. It's ridiculous. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. What's the first thing he does? They're all, under, they're all reclining at the table. What's the first thing he does? He rises. Oh, man, when Jesus rises, there's something epic about that. He rises. It's an epic image from leisure around the table to kneeling on the floor. Picture, I mean, it's, that starts off the gospel. That starts off the good news. Jesus rises from his throne that he's been on for eternity. He rises to his appointed mission. What's the second thing we see? In verse 4, he takes off his outer clothing. In other words, he empties himself of his infinite glory and radiance. Not his deity, his glory. The same thing is true when he gets up from his throne. He takes off his glory. Philippians 2 says he puts aside his glory. He empties himself. And then what does he do? After he takes off his outer clothing, he puts on a towel. He wraps it around himself. Guys, the clothing of a towel wrapped around you was a clear indication of servitude, of servanthood. It was not a very popular way to dress. He ties a towel around himself. In other words, he puts on a cloak of humanity. He rises from the throne. He takes off of his glory. He puts on humanity. In fact, Philippians 2, 6-7 says, The one who was in very nature God made himself nothing and took the very nature of a servant. And then what does he do? Verse 5, he pours water into a basin and washes the dirtiest parts of his followers, of his people. And in the same way on the cross, he pours out his blood to wash the dirtiest parts of us. He becomes dirty so that we become clean. He becomes sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Jesus was showing him on his heart that in his heart he came not to be served but to serve. And we find out that it's to give his life as a ransom for many. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't stop. Look at verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet, when the work was done, when it was finished, he put on his outer clothing and he reclined again. He puts back on his clothing. He puts back on his glory. And he sits back on his throne because the work 
is finished. The job's done. Can you see the visible gospel here? The beauty of this image. He's showing his disciples the gospel with visible words. He's showing them what he was sent for. He was sent to become dirty, to wash us so that we would become clean. He was sent to take our sin and give us his righteousness. He was sent to become defiled so that we could become righteous. This is is the eternal king, the, the, the mighty God, kneeling to wash us clean. As this is the visible gospel, this is what's in view as we get to this text. But the text doesn't just say that. The story does, doesn't simply stay at what the heart of the gospel is. There's, it moves into a second part as well when we, when we encounter Peter because we're finding out in Peter that God's not just interested in salvation. He's also interested in sanctification. So we're moving into the second part of our continued cleansing or our sanctification. So Jesus, he's doing this. He's washing his disciples' feet as they're reclined at the table. He's going from disciple to disciple, and they're all just astounded. They're shocked in silence at what their master is doing to them, what he's doing for them. Oh, and then you get to Peter. You notice how John says it? Then he came to Simon Peter. I'm pretty sure he wrote in a sigh there. Uh, How many of you would say that the person you most relate to in Scripture is Peter? I'd say it's probably me. You want to know why you relate to him so well? Because Peter doesn't have an inner voice. He only has an outer voice. (laughs) He processes everything out loud. Sometimes he just doesn't get things right. But he usually gets right. Eventually he gets everything right, like the second time. Or maybe the hundredth time. I feel like that's me. So Jesus comes to Simon Peter. And Peter... He interrupts, he protests. Verse six, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? The emphasis is on the you and the me, or the you and the my. Verse seven, Jesus answered him, what I'm going to do, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. And verse eight, you will never wash my feet, Peter said. Guys, I'm about to say something that might hit home for you and might step on your toes. You realize that humility is not just being willing to serve, but it's also being willing to be served. So many of us are willing to look at others and say, I'd love, I want to help you. I want to I save your complex. So if you try to help me, that shows me that I actually have needs and I can't deal with that. So you don't get to help me. I only get to help you. Humility is not just serving. It's being humble enough to be served. But you can see Peter's not getting it. He's not tracking. Peter, I mean, Jesus even tells him, you're not going to understand it until I explain it afterwards, so just let me do my thing. But Peter says, no, there's no way you're going to wash my feet. You know, Peter is a lot like Nicodemus right now. Remember Nicodemus having the conversation with Jesus? And, and Jesus is like, 
You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, how am I supposed to get back in there? Like, that isn't, that isn't going to work. Am I crawl up into my mom's womb and do it? Just come out again? Is that what that is? The physical reality is what Nicodemus, Nicodemus was caught up with. Peter's caught up with physically what's happening here when Jesus is going after a spiritual point. Now, Jesus, this is the second time Jesus rebukes Peter. Look at verse 8. Jesus replied to him, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. That's hard. You know, he wasn't like, let me serve you because I want to feel good about myself. No. If you don't let me wash you, you're not actually one of me. You have no part with me. So Simon Peter responds and says to him, Lord, well, hey, not just my feet only. Do my hands and my head too. Get those things in there. Dunk them. You know what he's doing, though? He's doing what a lot of us do when we say to Jesus, Jesus, you can, you can serve me, you can cleanse me, but only in these parts of my life. Let me dictate how you serve me, Jesus. You can, only wa- you can wash me, that's fine, but only these parts. I know, I know several people, and I would even say this used to be me in some ways. I'm, I'm growing in this. That, that there are areas when we come to Jesus where we're obviously like, yeah, we need you to come in and be an, a cleansing agent in this part of our life. Please come clean this up. But by the way, you don't get to touch this over here, Jesus. You don't get to touch this immoral relationship that I have or all these different people that I've been sleeping with or, or how, how I've been handling my finances. You don't get to touch these. Don't get, uh, these are reserved for me only. You can clean these areas though, Jesus. Feel free. Clean up my job life. I definitely want that cleaned up. But Jesus is saying here, if we don't allow him to do his mission in our lives, then we actually don't have part in him. If we're not willing to say, hey, anything here, Jesus, in my life, free game, go ahead, just get in there and clean it up. Everything, I want it all clean. And in fact, you can kind of hear that that's kind of Peter's hope in this, in a way, clean my head and my hands. But Jesus gives this response back which very clearly indicates that what's in view here is not just simply the initial gospel, but also the sanctification that the gospel produces in us. So, so look at verse 10. One who has bathed, past tense, heirs, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean. Amen? Guys, most Christians know that Jesus forgives, that he bathes and initially washes, but they don't realize that he still wants to keep cleansing you. We don't realize Jesus cleanses. Our family right now, we just finished last week memorizing together 1 John 1, 8 through 9. If we say we have no sin, (laughs) if we say we don't have dirty feet, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
In other words, if we admit them. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He bathes and he keeps on cleaning. Like Jesus isn't just simply interested in the initial washing that we get to experience in his grace upon our justification, upon our being born again. Yes, that is sufficient unto salvation. He has forgiven you. You have been bathed. You are clean. But he's like, we're still in the world. Our feet still journey through this life. We still have contact with the world. And he wants to come in in those areas where you keep getting in contact with the world and say, let me continue to make you clean. It's the reality, the dynamic of the gospel uh, of the already and the not yet. The kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming now, and the kingdom will come in the future. You have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. All of these dynamics are true. You are clean, you are being cleaned, and you will be cleaned. This is the beauty of the gospel. It never ends. It's not just a past event. It's a future hope and a present reality all in the same. Amen. And the reality is, right now, even as Christians, you still have some dirty feet. There's still a little bit rank. They got some stank on them. Because as you walk in this life, as you walk in this life, you can't help but be dirty in the areas where your body contacts the world. So Jesus, offering his grace, not just once, but every day, offers to cleanse you, to wash you. It's this reality that we have been cleaned, we are perfect, and yet we are still sinning until that day when sin is no more. We have been cleaned. We are being cleaned even now, and one day we will be clean. That is the continued cleansing in the gospel as well. So that was part two. Y'all are probably shocked at how fast I'm moving through these. (laughs) But guys, this symbol, this act, isn't just the visible gospel on display. It's not just that. It is that, but it's not only that. And it's not just an indication, like with Peter's interaction with Jesus, it's not just an indication of, of, uh, of our continued cleansing, of uh, we have been cleaned and we continue to be cleaned by Jesus. That is all true. But there's this third reality that takes place in this story. He takes it even further. He commands the example. It's the example that he set, that gets commanded. Look at verse 12. After he's done all of this, he's put on his robe again, and he's reclining back at the table with his disciples. And he says, verse 12, do you know what I have done for you? I wonder how long he let that sink. Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly. I am those things. Rabbi and master, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord, your master, and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. All right, so now this is where we get into some fun conversation. Is Jesus being literal in his command? Do we 
Should we be washing, literally pulling out the basin? Like when you walk in, should we start having our ushers? When you walk in, just have a basin there for you to dip your feet in and our ushers start cleaning. We're going to run out of ushers real quick if that's the case. Uh, Is Jesus commanding it literally? If so, why isn't this one of the sacraments? Right? We have our sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, those things that were commanded. Why isn't this included in on that list? Well, there's a few reasons why. Uh, This is the only time, apart from one other passage, where we see this being done in the New Testament or any extra biblical context or any historical document about the New Testament church. They, They don't seem to carry it into their practice per se. The only time that this actually gets mentioned, foot washing gets mentioned, is about a widow. I think it's in 1 Thessalonians or 1 Timothy. I don't want to be wrong. I can be wrong. Don't get me wrong. I can be wrong. I don't mind. I'll admit that, but I just don't want to be wrong for you guys. First Timothy 5, it's about a widow who's really good at hospitality, and it says that she's good at washing feet. But other than that, there's nothing in the practice of the church. We know baptism happens a lot in the book of Acts. We know the Lord's Supper is observed often in the book of Acts, but nowhere do we see the New Testament church washing feet as a sacrament, per se. So is Jesus being literal in this command? And if so, how would it land into cultures around the world where now well, we've, got, we've got shoes that, that protect us, that keep us from uh, the dirt and the dung? And we've got great roads. I don't see any horses walking on them with leaving stuff behind. Like, so what do, we, what do we do? How does this work? Well, What Jesus commands is not the literal action per se. It's an attitude. It's not just an action. It's an attitude. Ultimately, foot washing wasn't the point. It wasn't the whole point of this. The heart of Jesus' command here is an attitude. It's a mindset of humility and helpfulness to one another. The command he has is a one another command. You guys remember that series that we did this past summer? We talked about what relationship in the church ought to look like, and we looked at all the different one another commands. We could have looked at this one back in the summertime, but I knew it was coming up in the fall, and I said, no, we're not touching it in the summer. We're just going to have another sermon series, one another sermon in in the fall as well as we go through the Gospel of John. We're commanded to do this to one another. Now, you might be asking, well, why can't I just wash my own feet? I don't have to let anybody else in on that. I can handle I can reach them, I think. Yeah, I got it. Why don't, why, why don't I just take care of my own? You take care of your own foot or feet. I think you have two. You wash yours. I'll wash mine. We're good. Well, if... If it was supposed to be a literal command, then that's what we could have run off into. No, we're specifically to wash one another's feet. It's commanded of one another, which means who are the instruments of cleansing now? You. You are. The command here, ultimately, the command is that you would serve as agents of cleansing in the messiest parts of one another's lives. 
Now some of you are like, I would rather just wash feet. That's, that, that's not as messy as this. The example, the action that Jesus took was setting an example for us to follow as his disciples. And following Jesus means that we're going to obey this, that we're going to do this. It means that we will put down the respect and the riches of this world and we'll pick up wet, dirty, stained towels and use it to clean someone's muddy feet. Guys, there are going to be fewer things in this world that we can do to make the gospel more beautiful and compelling when someone sees Christians with dirty towels and clean feet. Now, there's two quick points about that command that I think are important to exercise here, at least to explain here. Let's see. Is the screen working? It's not working now. Okay. Well, good luck. The first truth that I can tell you about, first application, is that no one is above serving. Can you say that? No one is above serving. Look at the crew back there making it happen right on time. Look at verse 16. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. In other words, the emissary has no right to think that he is exempt from the tasks cheerfully undertaken by the one who sent him. No slave has the right to judge any menial task as beneath him after his master has already performed it. And if Jesus has done these things, there's nothing beneath us. If our master will humbly serve others, then you and I are not exempt from humble service. Like you and I, we have absolutely no standing to say, I think I'm too good for that. I think I'm above that. That's beneath me. As one of the ways human pride manifests itself in a stratified society is in refusing to take the lower role. I'm telling you, nothing kills selfless service like pride like self-exaltation. Pride will keep you unavailable to be used in service to others. You know what pride will do? Pride will see a brother or a sister who's clearly got some, some, uh, some, some stuff caked on their feet and will point it out. Hey, your feet are really dirty. You, they're messy feet. Okay, and offers no care, offers no help, offers no assistance. And yet that often is what I see most commonly in Christians today. We call out the dirty feet in one another with no getting on the knee to help wash. In fact, that's usually what I see on the Facebook comment sections of a lot of people's posts. Dirty feet! 
you know, I, I keep hearing a quote from Pastor Ethan. And uh, he, says, he says this a lot of times. Often our service of others will only go so far as you and I are willing to be inconvenienced. It won't go past that. But the trait of humble service that Jesus demonstrates here, you can't, which cannot be like counterfeited in any way, the trait of humble service is the willingness to be inconvenienced for someone else's benefit, which lies really at the heart of the gospel. So that's one of the first truths, that, that no one is above serving. No one is above serving. In the messiest work of the kingdom, nobody's above it because Jesus done it. That's bad English. Sorry, Kathy. Jesus has done it. He did it. He's still doing it. You know, Jesus still serves. He still cleans. No one is above serving. But here's the other truth that I see. I just quit it out. What did I do? I didn't press a cancel button. Ah, no one is below being served. Say it. Here's a trick question for you. How many feet did Jesus wash? All of them. 24. 12 pairs of disciples' feet. Who else was at the table? Judas. Jesus washes Judas's feet. John already has commented that Jesus knew, he knows Judas's plans. Judas is in league with the devil. He's got it in his heart that he's made a pact with Satan to try to thwart Jesus's plan, to end Jesus's life. He's going to betray Jesus. Jesus knows all of it, and still he kneels at Judas's feet and washes them. God washed the feet of his betrayer. Let me ask you, would you have washed Judas's feet knowing he was going to betray you to be crucified? Some of you would probably say, yeah, I would have used gasoline and lit a match on it. <laughs> Let me wash those feet. Guys, our chief example, our God washed his betrayer's feet I know many of you in here know the pain of being betrayed. I know you know it. I know I've experienced it before. Some of you have been cheated on. Some of you have been left. Some of you have been forsaken. And the problem is we as human beings, carbon-based units, we're really good at holding grudges. We're really good at keeping history between one another which will block helpfulness and service. Can I just ask you, has, uh, is anyone going to do or has anyone done anything worse than what Judas did to Jesus to you? Will there be anybody in your life who does anything worse than what Judas did to Jesus? 
We all better be saying, absolutely not. No, it doesn't get worse than that. The closeness and the intimacy of the discipleship relationship that they, Jesus had with his 12. Being betrayed to death. Jesus still washed his feet. So does this mean that there might be some people who are off limits to your humble service in their life? Nope. There ought not be. No one is below your service. None of us are above serving. None of us are below being served. Now, I'm going to turn into a revivalistic uh, prosperity gospel preacher for a second. Let me just say, how many of you want to receive a blessing today? None of you? How many of you want to receive a blessing today? Right? You want to receive a blessing? Jesus tells you how. Verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You want your blessing from the Lord? Get on your knees and clean someone else's dirty feet. You're like, well, I don't want that kind of blessing. Could I just put an offering in the plate and maybe pay for a miracle? We don't believe that here. That's not how God works. If you want your blessing from the Lord, Follow the example of Jesus. Walk in his footsteps. Get down on your knee and wash dirty feet. Because you're going to learn that as you follow Jesus, even into the, the, the messiest places of other people's life, you will find joy and happiness waiting for you there. You're not going to find joy and happiness waiting, standing on your throne, issuing out edicts and receiving tribute. No, blessing is going to find you kneeling on the floor, towel in hand, washing dirty feet. Doing this for one another. So what does this look like for us as brothers and sisters in this church body? What, what ought this to look like for, for one another? Well, um, that is why we have this here. Um, I, I have already asked for uh, my brother Luke, uh, if you would come on up. Um, what I want to do is I want to use the visible portrayal of washing feet to show you what it can look like for you to do this spiritually for one another. All right? So go ahead and take those shoes off. They look good. You look good, by the way. We've got all sorts of things happening here, different components. The first thing that has to be true, if I want to walk in obedience to Jesus, in following his command here, following his example, I first have to be willing and motivated. I first have to have that in my heart, which means pride has been knocked out. Humility has already come in. I have to be willing to do this. I have to be motivated. Well, how can we be motivated? What can motivate us to do such a thing? Well, what motivated Jesus? Love. One of the first things it says, he loved them to the end. But what else did he say? Verse three, I think. Jesus knowing. What did he know? Well, one, he knew all that the father had given to him. Everything that he had received from the Father. In fact, Jesus had received everything from the Father. Knowing that, one, knowing everything God has given you. Keeping that in your mind and heart. 
What else did he know? Well, he knew that he had come from the Father. In verse 3, it says he came from the... He knowing he had come from the Father. Second thing you need to know is that you come from the Father. That you are his. That he is your Father. And he has sent you into this world with a purpose. You found your purpose now. You know what it is. Humble service. There's a third thing that it says that he knew. Jesus knowing that he was going to the Father. Third thing you should know that motivates this kind of service, you'll be going home soon. It's okay. This life wasn't about you in the first place. You're going to your Father. Know those three things. Keep these things in your heart and mind always that will motivate a willingness to serve like this. So the first thing that's needed in me is a willingness to serve a motivation to do this. Second thing that is deeply required is vulnerability in my brother. As I've I've had my feet washed before, it feels embarrassing and shameful. Like Like they should not be doing this to me. I don't deserve this. My feet are too gross. It requires a, a willingness to be vulnerable if you're going to care for a brother or a sister and wash their feet, serve them like Jesus served. It also requires trust. I think we've lost a lot of trust in the church today, not in the little church here, but the big C church, because we don't know how to do this well. And a lot of people, instead of bending down to wash feet, take a Bible and smack them on the head. Well, I don't, I don't want that. It takes trust. The next thing that it requires is for me, not just to have a willingness and a motivation, but also a posture of humility. Like I've got to be willing to get down on my knee, to go low. Guys, we will not go far as a church if we're unwilling to go low. We will go as far as we go low and humble ourselves. We have to take a posture of humility, but not only that, we have to draw near. If I'm, if I'm far away from Luke, if I don't know him really well and I'm at a distance from him, I can't do this thing at an arm's length. I have to draw close, draw near. This is a vulnerability spot. This is also an intimacy spot. And the foundation of intimacy is trust. And the foundation of trust is goodness. I ha- he has to know that I'm going to be good with him. That I'm going to care. That I'm humble. And it requires closeness. It requires a posture of humility. And then finally, it requires the right application of the water. You guys, you understand this. When you wash one another's feet, you don't just do it dry, right? You can, you can try to, sorry. He, I, he is ticklish. He's very ticklish. I didn't choose you for that purpose. But if it's caked all over, you cannot just start trying to wipe it away. You'll only smear it in. You have to apply the water. And most often in Scripture, we see water as the Holy Spirit, and we see water as the Word. And so we bring to Him the washing of the water with the Word, and we bring it with the Spirit in heart and mind, 
and we clean. Sorry. I'm getting in the toes, man. You, 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 you're vulnerable. You opened up. And when they're clean, you offer to dry. And they are clean. Because you've made yourself available to cleanse a brother or a sister. And to be an agent of cleansing. If you would stand up, brother. Guys, it's the messiest part of one another's lives that Jesus wants us to enter into. It's where he wants to do most of his work in you. And he has commanded that we as the church be the agents of cleansing now. Filled with his spirit, bringing his word, washing dirty feet. Guys, this is messy. This is grimy. This is hard. But it looks like, I mean, I, I, these are just real life examples. It looks like caring for a lady whose husband kicked her out with her son, her 13-year-old son, because he wanted to live with his mistress. She's homeless. She has no food, no job. It's sitting with her and crying reminding her of her value, that she is the image of God on her, that no matter how she's treated by this scumbag, she's still worth something to God. It looks like really late nights of conversations with couples who are on the brink of divorce, whose only hope really is that Jesus comes in and revives their resolve to love one another. It looks like embracing, not avoiding conversations with strangers who eventually in the conversation tell you that they've lost their faith in God because their, their wife or their husband are in this massive storm and they, they keep asking God to do things and he's not showing up and he's not calming the storm. It's not avoiding that conversation, it's entering into it.